We got a wild microphone stand here. Good morning, church family. Glad to have you here. If this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, uh, my name is Randy Boltinghouse, and I'm just privileged to serve as the lead minister here. And um, well, our church's vision is about being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. And we're going to do that this morning as we begin a new series over um, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament, Book of Mark. It's the second uh, book in the New Testament. You'll find it in your church Bibles on page 707, 707. And I'm going to be reading our scripture this morning from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And if you don't have a copy of uh, a Bible to call your own, Uh, pick up the navy blue bible in the pouch in front of you and uh, you can have it as our gift put your name in it take it home and receive it as just a gift from windsor road i'm going to read our scripture verses this morning and then i'm going to give us kind of an overview of mark's gospel who was mark who was he writing to uh what's his main theme and then we're going to dive into uh verses 1 through 15 so that's kind of where we're going read the verses give an overview and then cut right into our verses as we uh, begin this series called The One. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is God's word. Well, I don't know how many of you were able to see the first of these presidential debates this past week, but about 65 million Americans did. So I thought, it being the presidential 
campaign season at all, it would be a little fun to have a little presidential campaign slogan trivia. All right? So, what I've got here are some famous presidential campaign slogans. And I'm going to show you the slogan. And we're going to see who knows their presidential campaign trivia. Now, I'm not going to lob you all any softballs like, are you really better off than you were four years ago? No, 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 no. Now, this is AP presidential campaign slogan material. All right? So let's see how trivial you might be. (laughs) Slogan number one. Here we go. He's making us proud again. Anybody remember who said that? Come on. (laughs) All right. Gerald Ford. He's making us proud again. You remember who his predecessor was, don't you? Do you remember who his predecessor was? <laughs> All right. Yep. All right, let's go on here. Let's go on here. Who said this? A chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Hoover, that's right. Hoover, Herbert Hoover did in 1928, just before the Great Depression. Didn't quite turn out that way, did it? <laughs> All right, who said this? Vote yourself a farm. Oh, come on, you're killing me. Abraham Lincoln, yes, that's right. Abraham Lincoln. Don't say Jesus, okay? Jesus said this. I know he's the answer to every question here at Windsor Road. Abe Lincoln is the second answer to every question, right? That's right, vote yourself a farm. That's when they gave land away, all right? Uh, and by the way, uh, this was what he said uh, uh, for when he was running for re-election. Uh, he said, don't swap horses in the middle of the stream. All right? With all due respect to our beloved President Lincoln, I would hardly call the Civil War a stream. But anyway. Well, here's my favorite. Here's my favorite. Mama, where's my pa? Gone to the White House. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you know who said that? James G. Blaine said that. He was running for president, and he was referring to the out-of-wedlock child which Grover Cleveland allegedly fathered. Ooh, ah. Not to be outdone, Grover Cleveland responded with, Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, continental liar from the state of Maine. So... We want to go back to the good old days? Those were the good old days. You know, it really kind of makes our current campaign slogans sound like they came from Potzers or something. What's forward? What's that? What's believe in America? Come on. Let's get back to the old stuff, you know? All right. I think we're going to in the next few weeks. Yeah, really. Well, what an amazing country we live in to, to be a part of to be a part of this process of selecting our leaders. And, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you know, Americans born in America, they just, we just can't fathom living in a time or an era where we wouldn't have a voice. But can you imagine 
living in a time or an era where you wouldn't have any voice there, because there would be no mechanism. There would be no process. Uh, and leave alone selecting your leaders, just no process for, you know, dissent. No expression. You, know, you, didn't have a, you didn't have the ability to you know, write a letter to the editor. You couldn't blog. There was no internet. Imagine living in that era where no such media expressions uh, either existed or were permitted. About the only media expression that you might find, would, would, there would be a, a, a herald who would ride into the center of the town and declare a proclamation you know, that so-and-so has now become the emperor. I'm thinking of this proclamation that was issued. This slogan, the birthday of the God, was for the world the beginning of his gospel. You know who that referred to? Not Jesus and not Abraham Lincoln. Augustus Caesar Augustus Caesar, he was called a god. They built temples after him. And you see that word, why that's gospel. I thought that was a religious word. No. No, that's a very highly charged political word. You see, gospel has overtones. When you say that word gospel, you know that a new way of life has dawned. A new way of life. And Augustus Caesar brought that new way of life. And he did so backed by the army. Backed by iron chariots and armed soldiers and fierce centurions. And the Roman Empire courted no competitors. They didn't. They didn't tolerate their competitors. They crucified their competitors. Would-be kings were strung up on a cross. That's how Rome handled it. And so, when we read Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it's good to remember that that opening verse is like an explosion. It's like a loud alarm that wakes you up at 4.45 in the morning. Bam! The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whoa! Wait a minute. You know, I thought Caesar was in charge. And at the time... Nero was the Caesar, who was not, not the kind of Caesar that even Augustus was, this maniac Caesar who stitched the skins of wild animals onto the backs of Christians and then sent them into the arena to face the wild beasts, this maniac. Who would dare? Who would dare? defy him by this proclamation about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, my goodness. You see, this is heavy language here, especially when we consider the fact that the gospel of Mark 
Yes, it had as its audience the wider Roman Empire, but specifically to the Roman Christians in the city of Rome, right there in the capital city, right underneath Nero's nose, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of all of a sudden you go, what kind of a, what what does he mean by that? Son of God, what is that? Imagine tomorrow morning uh, in, in the News Gazette, I've got a full page ad with my picture on it that says, Randall Allen Boltinghouse, President of the United States. What? Did I miss an election or what? What is this proclamation? What, do you, what does he mean by that? How odd. Really, that doesn't sound president. What kind of a president? What, and so what kind, of, what kind of a son of God? The only son of God we've got reference to is this Augustus Caesar, or this Nero, or the Caesars. What, what, is, what kind of a son of God is this? And Mark proceeds to answer this question. That's what the gospel of Mark is about. Mark answering the question, what kind of a son of God, what kind of a king is this Jesus? And, and so Mark reads more like a, a docudrama as we follow over the shoulders of those who follow Jesus, looking and seeing what they saw. And specifically, we get to look over the shoulder of one disciple, one apostle, the apostle Peter. Mark's gospel contains the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. Now, let me show you how that works. First of all, who who was Mark? Mark. Well, his fuller name is John Mark. Sometimes he's just called Mark. And he appears uh, here and there in the New Testament. Uh, In Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, we learn that Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. Now, Barnabas traveled with Mark. Uh, and the Apostle Paul on the first missionary journey. And in fact, uh, Mark uh, deserted them in this journey and went back home. And when Paul and Barnabas came back and reported to the church about their missionary and church planting initiatives, why, when it came time for the second missionary journey, why Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. He's just a cousin. Let's give him a second chance. Paul said, no. Barnabas said, he goes with me or we're not going. Paul said, fine. And so Paul and Silas went on that second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 15. And Barnabas and Mark then went back to Cyprus. And Paul and Mark later kind of reconciled. You can read about that in 2 Timothy and His name shows up again in one of Paul's letters to Philemon. And in fact, uh, Mark ends up in Rome. And Paul was in prison in Rome. And well, Peter was in Rome too. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, we read uh, this verse at the very end of Peter's first letter. 1 Peter 5, 13 says, She who is in Babylon... She refers to the church, all right, who is in Babylon. That is, uh, that's figurative language for the city of Rome, 
All right? So the church who is in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And then this phrase, and so does my son, Mark. There he is. So Mark was connected not only with Paul, but he was also connected with Peter. And Mark gives us Peter's eyewitness testimony of his experiences with Jesus. And, and then there's one more. Well, what I'm just telling you just is, is involves the Bible itself. But I, I found this fascinating quote, uh, which is not in the Bible, but it's outside. It's, it's extra biblical evidence for Mark's authorship. Uh, in the year A.D. 130, Bishop of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was a town in what is now modern-day Turkey. And in the year A.D. 130, the Bishop of Hierapolis, a guy by the name of Papias, wrote this. Listen to this. Mark, in his capacity as Peter's translator, wrote down as many things as Peter recalled from memory of the things either said or done by the Lord. And he made it his one concern not to omit anything he had heard or to falsify anything. Isn't that fascinating? So Mark gives us the eyewitness testimony of the apostle Peter. And we get to follow the disciples, especially Peter, as if to peer over their shoulders, seeing what they see. And, and, and compared to the other gospels, why Peter uh, shows up in Mark's gospel proportionately more than, than he does in any of the other gospels. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Peter almost never goes off stage. Why? Because because we're getting to see what Peter saw. And we follow Peter and the other disciples as they are answering this question. Well, what kind of a king is he? What kind is he? And, and they're just mystified by this Jesus. Who is he? And in fact, this question appears at least a half a dozen different times in Mark's gospel. Why, look at chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, you, you hear this question. What is this? A new teaching and with authority? What's all that about? And then in, in Mark chapter 2, verse 7, the, the, you, there's another question. Why does he talk like that? Why does he talk like that? And then what, what about in Mark chapter 4, verse 41? Mark 4, 41. Who is it that the winds and the waves even obey him? You know? Oh, and then let's not leave out Mark chapter 6, verse 2. Mark chapter 6, verse 2. What is this wisdom that's been given to him? Can you hear that question recirculated? Who is he? What kind of a king is he? And then in Mark eleven twenty eight, 28. By what authority do you do these things? By what authority do you do these things? Questions about who is he? Who are you? Well, of course, people have their opinions about the answers. And so they answer that question, right? The Pharisees think that Jesus, we know who he is. He's the devil. What about Herod? Herod thinks he knows who Jesus is. Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. Oh, thank you, Herod. Other people think that Jesus is Elijah. Everybody's got their opinions about who they think. Let me ask you, who do you say that Jesus is today? Huh? Well, we journey through Mark's gospel, and we finally hear the answer 
And the answer comes from the most unlikely character at the most unlikely place. Mark chapter 15, verses 37 to 39. There at the cross, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. And that's how we find out who this Jesus is. This is how we know what kind of king this Jesus is. What kind of a king is this Jesus? Here's the answer. He's the kind of king who gives his life to save his people so that he might rule the world through them. That's that's who he is. He gave his life to save his people. He surrendered himself. He sacrificed his life for the sake of his people, for the sake of you, for the sake of this church, for my sake. That's who Jesus is. But here's the deal. You knew that already. You did. You knew that already, and here's why I say that. You knew that already because in verses 1 through 13, you see, the action in Mark's gospel begins in verse 14. That's when the action begins. But in verses 1 through 13, the director of the play comes out in front of the curtain before the curtain parts. And the director of the play gives the audience, the reader, the hearers, privileged information. Privileged information about who the hero is. He's the king. He's the son of God. And so that's why in verse 1 we read the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ. Now notice the director does not say the beginning of Jesus Christ. Because the son was begotten, not made. There has never been a time when the son was not. Jesus Christ himself said in the gospel of John, before Abraham was born, I am. Paul says in Colossians, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him He's the, he, the, 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 this is the beginning of the, of the gospel. This is the, what we're about to read is the beginning of the new way of life that's been dawned uh, because of God the Son has come in the human flesh. And, and, and note that this was not an afterthought. It wasn't like God was wondering, okay, what am I going to do now? There's so much sin in the world. Okay, uh, at the last minute, he pulls Jesus in from the bullpen. No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. And we know that because of verses 2 and 3. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. And actually, if you're looking at your footnotes, you'll see that Malachi, the prophet Malachi, appears 
Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And if you dig a little deeper, you'll understand that actually that verse, I will send my messenger ahead of you, is echoed in Exodus 23, verse 20. It's as if the entire Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Bible is is compressed into verses 2 and 3 as if to say the coming of the one, the coming of the king was not an afterthought. It's a part of God's plan. God has planned for this to happen. The coming of the king at this place and at this time is on God's timetable. And so it doesn't matter that that maniac Nero is stitching uh, the skins of wild beasts on God's people and sending them out to suffer. Things are not out of control. We often go through experiences of life that are difficult and have oppression. We think, where is God? Things are out of control. And these verses tell us life is not out of control. God is on his throne supervising and superintending and whatever comes into your life has first gone through God's life, through Jesus' life to get to you. I like that quote by a pastor named Alan Redpath who said as such, he said there is nothing No circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. And if it's come that far, then it's come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment. But as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him and as accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing into my own life, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, and no circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. Now, can your king do that? Can your king do that? See, we have one who provides that kind of peace and assurance, even in the midst. Life is, life is not out of control as far as God is concerned. Because the king has come. The gospel, a new way of life, has dawned. And he is a king. He is a king. And why do we know that? Because because the voice of one calling in the desert says, prepare the way for the Lord. You see, when kings appeared, when they gave royal visits to towns, they didn't use everybody else's highways. They had their own highway built. Why is that? Because they're the king. That's why. And John the Baptist came as this voice in the desert saying, prepare the way. Make the path straight for him. And so John came, verse 4, in the spirit and power of the Old Testament prophet Elijah baptizing in the desert and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. This wild man in the desert brought throngs and multitudes wearing the camel color, uh, the camel skins. And, And by the way, when we think of wilderness, some of your scriptures, some of your versions say wilderness. I'm not talking about this. This is North American wilderness, okay? 
This is the kind of wilderness where John did not preach. Here's where he did preach. Yeah. He's out there with nothing else to eat but locusts and wild honey. Locusts is the only bug that God allowed the Israelites to eat. Huh? So he ate bugs and wild honey. A lot of wild honey. Pass me some more of that wild honey. Then baptize that locust in that honey. <laughs> that wasn't in the original. That was anyway. And but he's got one message. He's got one message to God's people, and the message is repent and receive this baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. And, and, and we know when we go into Bible studies that the word repentance means to change your mind, a change mind. Yeah, but we're just not talking something mental. We're talking that an entire trajectory of my life has been turned away from my agenda, my purposes, my plans, and my entire life's direction and focus and aim and action is bent toward the God of this universe, the King, because he's come. That's what's behind John's message of, uh, of, of, of a, of a baptism of repentance and and it doesn't matter that you were born hebrew it doesn't matter hebrew gentile everyone needs to get into the water because because where you were born or how you were born makes no difference what matters is this this life turning trajectory toward the god of this universe and you must humble yourself if you're going to turn to god because God will not have anything to do with your life if your life is full of pride. Someone once said, when pride walks on stage, God walks off stage. He will have nothing to do with the proud heart. And that's why some of you are having a difficult time understanding God today. Because your heart is so proud. And you think you know how to run your life. And then you keep making decisions that are just not wise. And you wonder then why, if God were, wait a minute. Not if God were God, if you'd stop acting like God. Repent and turn your life, turn the trajectory of your life to him and humble yourself. And John didn't merely preach that message. He lived that message as he said, I, John's saying, I'm, I'm just coming to get you ready for that. You're not going to be ready for the king if you have a proud heart. And John's life his, the whole trajectory of his life was filled with humility, which is why he said, after me will come one more powerful than I. And then he says, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. What, what John was saying is that I'm not even worthy to do what a Gentile slave does. You see, a Jewish slave didn't have to even touch the feet or the sandals of their, his or her master. Those, that's for Gentile slaves. And John the Baptist says, a Gentile slave outranks me. See, I'm not even worthy to touch the feet of Jesus. I'm just baptizing you with water, John says. But when the king comes, 
He will immerse you in the power of the Holy Spirit. So you turn the life, you turn the trajectory of your life toward him. Verse nine says he came. At that time, Jesus came. Now, listen, verse five and verse nine go together. Because you see, out of the multitude that came from Judea and Jerusalem and the the urbanites and the sophisticated people from the capital city of Jerusalem, there came the one from obscure Nazareth in Galilee. Where's that? Where's that? And he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus, too, received the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought he was the son of God. I thought he was the sinless son of God. What's the sinless son of God doing receiving a baptism John's baptism of repentance. What, 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 what's he need to repent of? Why would he need to be baptized? And by the way, that's why I believe that this historically happened because if I were making up a tale about a Messiah who was sinless, if I were making that up, I sure wouldn't have him show up in the river being baptized with the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I wouldn't do that. That's not how they wrote back then, you see. But that's exactly what happened. But still, the question's on the table. Who, why was Jesus baptized with John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins? He didn't have any sins, so why would he be baptized except that he would be baptized for someone else's sins? He's repenting for someone else's sins, you see. That's what's going on. And that's why as he came up out of the water, the, 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 these amazing, amazing things happened. He came up out of the water, and the Bible says that the heavens were torn. The heavens were torn. You, are you saying that all of the people saw this? No, I'm not saying that. Apparently only Jesus saw this and experienced this. And well, how do we know this? Because he told it to his disciples and he told it to Peter and Peter told it to Mark and now we hear from Mark. So the heavens are ripping open. It doesn't just say they opened, they ripped open. And that word ripped open or tore open shows up again in Mark chapter 15. We just read that referring to the curtain of the temple which was torn, so there's a permanent tearing that occurs. Jesus comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit of God comes down like a dove. Now, notice it doesn't say a dove. It comes down like a dove. It lights upon, hovering upon the sun, and then the voice from heaven This is my beloved son, or this is the son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our three-in-one God is right there. And and, and see, this this is what we see, perfect love, perfect community, perfect deference. Listen, God did not create this world because he was lonely. Our three-in-one God experienced perfect community and perfect fellowship. Well, then why, why was this world created? Because that's what love does. 
You are my son whom I love. And so this has to be shared. This has to be given. We're learning something about the God that we worship. That he's a giving, loving, fellowshipping, sharing kind of God. That's who he is. And you notice Mark's gospel starts with the very first word of Mark's gospel is beginning. Beginning. Guess what? That's what we read in Genesis 1. In the beginning. So just as our triune God was present at the beginning of creation, so our triune God is at the recreation, the redemption of his people. And verse 12 says something so odd. Why here the Spirit is hovering over the sun and then what happens? You know, it's it's like the last day of church camp. You feel so good and so joyful and so full of the Spirit. What am I going to do now? I'm going to go on a speaking tour. No. He goes out into the wilderness at once. The Spirit sent him. Literally, the Spirit cast him out into the desert. Hurled him, the sun, out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He experienced the haunting, the desolation, the trials, the horrors of the wilderness. He was with the wild animals. Which wild animals? The ones that can eat you. Those wild animals. And you look at this and you realize, wait a minute, this is a replay of God's people. Jesus is reenacting Israel's history as Israel traversed through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, so the sun traverses through the baptismal waters of the Jordan River as Israel went through the desert wilderness for 40 years, so the sun traverses through the desert wilderness for 40 days, and he, he was tempted and he was tried. The wilderness was a place of, of, of horror. It's a place of testing. It was a place of provision. There were angels there, but Jesus accomplished what God's people could never accomplish. He came through that experience as a victor, as the conquering king. Which is why then, in verse 14, that's when the action starts. So you see, once the curtain blows open, our conquering king, who has made it through the baptismal waters, and has made it through the wilderness, and has stared down Satan, and his legions, and the wild beasts, which, by the way, would be of encouragement to those Christians who wondered, where is God? He's with you because he experienced the wild beasts with you. You're never alone in your trial. Your king has conquered. And so when the curtain opens in verse 14 and beyond, I mean Jesus puts it in overdrive. He preaches and he proclaims the gospel. Jesus now, having been the new Adam, the new Israel, is now the new Joshua, conquering the land. Only he does so by means of his word, the word of truth. And he preaches the gospel, proclaiming the good news of God. So he proclaims the gospel of God and, And listen, he is the gospel. 
He proclaimed himself. And and what we're going to see as we go through Mark is the word at once or immediately. And it's like, you almost need oxygen trying to keep up with him. Because he's going here and moving there. He's on the move. There's this sense of urgency. There's a crisis that's going, God has arrived. Now anything can happen. Anything can happen. Buckle your seatbelts. The only question that remains is this. The only question that remains is this. How am I going to respond? What am I? God, God is on the scene. Now what am I going to do? And you know what? You don't have to answer that because Jesus answers it for you. What does he say? Repent and believe the good news. Guess what? Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the gospel of God. Does does that tell you something about what the nature of Christianity is? The nature of Christianity isn't go to church, get in a small group, give, serve in the nursery, be good, blah, blah, blah. No, that's a lousy campaign slogan. The nature of Christianity is that it's in a person. Christianity is about someone, the one, the king. And what we learn from Mark's gospel through the eyes of the Apostle Peter, is that Jesus Christ is the kind of king who chooses to die so that his people might live. All the other kings want their citizens to die for them. But we worship the one who gave his life for us. And because of what Jesus did, when God looks at you When you're in Christ, when you believe the gospel, trust him, repentance, a life trajectory toward him, in Christ, in Christ, God says of you, you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. And I know some of you need to hear that today. You need to hear that. If you're in Christ, God looks at you and he smiles upon you and he says, you're my beloved with whom I am well pleased. In Christ, God has no negative thoughts about you. You belong to him. And what you need to know too is that that's not the end of the story because you see, God, the king didn't die so that you could live so that he could just say, you're my beloved with whom I'm well pleased. Because you see, what kind of a king is he? He's the kind of king who gives his life to save his people so that through his people, he might rule the world. God wants to rule the world through his people. That's us here That's why he has saved us. And so to the extent that we go forward and see the weapons of God's warfare are not chariots of iron. The weapons of God's warfare are love and truth and service and ministry. And so to the extent that we heal the sick, to the extent that we comfort the afflicted, to the extent that we worship here in community, to the extent that we go out to Kenwood and, and, and see God reigning there on that property, 
to the extent where you're going to go over to the Connect and Serve, and you're going to see a banner that says all of the serving and ministry opportunities that are facing us this fall, to the extent that we live out our opportunities to make a difference, to the extent that we have spiritual conversations about the king, to the extent that we share with those in need. That's how the king rules globally through his spirit-drenched people. Jesus rules through his people who extend the love of the king over this world. That's what we mean by passionately pursuing Christ. Oh my, what a vision and what a mission that Mark's gospel gives us. And when you really look at it, what you understand is that Mark's gospel is not only an eyewitness account of the life of Christ, it's also a roadmap for our life in Christ. It is, right? It begins with baptism, proceeds with the vigorous pursuit of ministry in the face of temptation and opposition. It culminates in suffering and death with the promise of everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not just the life of Christ. That's your life and my life in Christ. Now, now what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? You see, here's the twist. You follow behind Peter's shoulder, seeing what Peter sees and knowing more than Peter But at the end, at the end of Mark's gospel, the camera suddenly flips around and stares you in the face because Mark's aim is to convert you. He wants you to bow to the one so that as you live in him, you might know beyond any doubt that no sorrow will ever disturb you, no trial will ever disarm you, no circumstance will cause you to threat, for you will rest in the joy of the one. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you.